Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Kane Weaver, who is a fourth-year resident training in psychiatry in North Carolina. He graduates in 2023 and will be fully fledged by then. He is a stroke and brain injury advocate and has been featured in media because of the lessons he learned, not just as a physician, but as a stroke survivor. And if many of you are watching this instead of just listening, you are looking at a very young man here. So how old were you when you actually had a stroke? I was 28 years old. I was in my first year of residency. So thank you again for joining. I always leap right in with the question, but let me ask a second question. You had made the decision to become a physician before you had your stroke, is that correct? Long before that, I had no idea that I was gonna have a stroke or anything to that effect. I, I knew I wanted to be a doctor a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And how did your ex personal experience of having a stroke inform that decision? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess it kind of confirmed it because I was already in residency. I had already finished medical school by that point. And then I was at the end of my first year of residency whenever I had the stroke. Um, and so at that point in time, it definitely confirmed my passion for medicine and for patient care uh, because I learned a lot of lessons about patient care uh, through my experience as the patient. I think all doctors should have to be the patient for a period of time. What were, if you were gonna name the top one, what did you learn most from the good care and perhaps the growing edges of care? Oh my gosh, well, I, <laughs> I feel like I learned a million lessons and I agree with you that I think every doctor, as terrible of an experience as it is, you make, it makes for a lot better of a doctor if you have had those experiences. Um, you're able to relate to your patients just on a whole other playing field. Um, the biggest lesson I think I learned was just the importance of our words and to always speak kindness into the universe. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're speaking to a nurse, if you're speaking to a tech, if you're speaking to a patient, if you're speaking to a medical student, it, there's this whole trickle down effect and it affects patient care at its core if you're not using kind words and being in the patient seat and in the hot seat and experiencing the negative effects from some experiences where I had where different words could have been chosen. Um, I would say for sure that confirmed that kindness and speaking positivity and hope uh, for our patients would be the most important lesson. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Tell me, let's back up a little bit about your stroke story. What exactly happened and what did you lose, at least for a period of time? 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I was completely healthy whenever the stroke happened. Um, I was 28 years old, had no medical history prior to that. And I always enjoyed working out. And so I was at the end of my first year of residency. And I was on my very first vacation day of uh, my intern year. And I wanted to go work out before I went to the beach with my family. And I was working out and I felt a pop inside the right side of my head. And following the pop, um, my left arm dropped beside me, paralyzed. And I called my mom and I was like, you've got to get me to a hospital. I'm having a stroke. I'll meet you at the car. And I kind of darted out of the gym trying to get to my car so she could find me. And that was with my left arm hanging by my side. And as I got closer to the car, my left leg also went paralyzed. And I ended up collapsing in the parking lot. And that's where she found me. She called 911. And... Um, they rushed me to the emergency room and uh, within seconds, you know, they had already taken a CT scan of my head and realized that there was an arterial venous malformation rupture. So for short, it's AVM, um, just kind of an abnormal connection between the arteries and the veins in my brain. And um, that's what I had no signs or symptoms prior to that moment that I had an AVM. Uh, it was very sudden and we found out very quickly once I was, once I was rushed into surgery, they told my mom, like, it is very likely he will not survive this surgery. Um, and they were definitely predicting that. Um, I did survive the surgery um, and I was in a coma for a few weeks following that. But they predicted, like, I would not have cognitive function. They predicted that if I did survive, like, if I, you know, lived through the coma and I was actually had, like, brain function that I would not be able to move my left arm or my left leg. And, you know, going back to work as a doctor was off the table. That was, that was not even an option. We were considering, you know, is this worth living? Is this a quality of life that Kane would want? And those were the conversations that were had in those few weeks I was asleep. So knowing that, what would you have said to those doctors if you could have actually been in the room and verbalizing? What would you have said to them? Those those doctors, surprisingly, are not the doctors I feel like I learned the lessons from. I've, I feel like those doctors were, you know, it, it is true, arterial venous malformations, if they rupture and they're a brain ABM, uh, most people die immediately. And I was very close, you know, in talking with my neurosurgeon, I was very close to dying. And um, my, I guess my words for them are just thank you because they did the really hard work and they literally saved my life. Um, and they were giving realistic projections at that time. You know, I was in a coma, so they didn't know if I had real brain function or not or what I would even what I would be like. Um, and so for them, I would say thank you. But the lessons that I've learned come from the doctors after that and the healthcare team members after that. The kindness, word choice. Yes. Yes. Do you have an example of having an event, a really bad day, and having somebody's words make that difference for you? Do you have that moment? Uh, so I, I guess it's kind of opposite. I was having, you know, despite how horrible what I just described sounds, I, you know, I had a really good support system. I had really good friends and family who were like, we're going to get through this no matter what. Obviously, you know, I came out of the coma. I did have brain function. And I like, from there, we hit the ground running with my recovery. Uh, I was paralyzed completely on the left side of my body. So left arm, left leg, and for a little bit, my left side of the face. And, um, 
so we kind of hit the ground running with recovery. And so we were very optimistic. We were very much like, we're going to get through this. We're going to, you know, push the limits of recovery. Um, I did have the right half of my skull missing throughout that whole process as well. They couldn't, you know, reassemble it until about five months later. So I was in that recovery process without the right half of my skull. And so kind of to the effect of your question, I was having maybe better days, like we're going to get through this whenever people would come in and they would use their words to knock me down. Um, you know, we would be like, we're going to get through this. You're going to, you know, you're going to get some function back. You're going to push it to the limit. You're going to get back to work as a doctor. And rather than supporting that motion that we were trying to put forward and speaking to the universe, it was like, no, you're not like, here's why. And there's more details on that that I can certainly provide if you want. Please, please. Yes. One example, one example, yeah. <laughs> one example, you know, obviously if you have the right half of your skull missing, it literally was the right half. If it's missing, I was in incredible pain. And um, I remember one time the speech pathologist came into the room and she was like, hey, can I do a cognitive assessment on you? And I, I was just in so much pain, like, I mean, the right half of my skull had been sawed through and it led to severe headaches. As you can imagine, I can't take an, I can't do an assessment. And also at that time I was really dehydrated. So the nurses and the team were trying to place a central line and she was like, well, I need to get this assessment right now. And she kind of dismissed my concerns about the fact that, you know, I'm getting a central line placed in that moment and that I was in a lot of pain with a headache. And she proceeded to go forward with her evaluation. She started playing a TED talk on an iPad. And of course, I was not listening to this TED talk whatsoever. Like I was in a lot of pain. They kept stabbing me with needles, trying to get the central line placed. And I wasn't paying attention. And so she started asking questions. And I was like, look, I was not paying attention. And she continued to ask me questions. I, of course, got the questions wrong. And she said, you know, I would have expected a doctor to perform better. And that was in the first moment, that was the first moment that it like struck me just kind of words used to like completely knock me down because my career, it, I realized in that moment that my career was at compromise with the injury that had happened, but also with just how strong her words were and how horrible they made me feel. In a moment that I was also really vulnerable and in a lot of physical pain anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry that that was what you lived. It makes sense that people get on their mission about getting a job done in the hospital and they forget that there are humans actually at the center of that job sometimes. Yes. Yeah. She, she had a, she had an assignment and I, I understand that, you know, I'm a doctor myself, so I, I know what that means to have to get the work done. But at the same time you do have, if someone's in extreme pain, if they're placing a central line, there's certainly a time and a place for evaluations and there's a time and a place where you can't do it. And I would argue that that would be an obvious sign showing that this is not the time or place to do that. What would have been more powerful for you in that moment? from a medical professional? If someone had said, we know you're in a lot of pain, we know that like right now you're getting a central line placed and I know you want to get back to being a doctor and we're going to support that as much as we can. Um, you know, we're going to let you rest. We're going to let, we're going to try to treat your pain right now. We're going to try to make sure that you're comfortable and we'll come back to this assessment later. 
at a more appropriate time. At a more appropriate, at a more appropriate time. time, right? Yeah. So when you think about barriers for patients and ones we want to remove, what would they be? Oh, there are so many barriers that we can think about removing. Uh, we have, you know, the socioeconomic barriers. We have the racial barriers. We have barriers that the healthcare profession itself has put up in terms of access to care, um, whether it be discriminatory barriers, whether it be just insurance barriers, which play a huge role I see in day-to-day challenges. Um, and so, uh, and also just like a lot of people don't know how to work the healthcare system. It's not something that we're really educated on. I, even though I'm a doctor, I didn't realize a lot of the things that I've learned throughout this. And so I feel like there's a huge educational barrier that plays in uh, to the healthcare system as well. Did you learn that the hard way? Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Even as a doctor, you know, in medical school, we're so focused on learning all of the diseases, all of the medications, every, how the human body works, but how learning how a system really works and how the healthcare system works, it's a whole other beast. Mm-hmm. Do you think doctors should be aware of how that works? as part of their education? I think they should. And I think when you're in residency, you get exposed to it, uh, certainly, but it, it's, it's a gigantic entity. And you know, that even throughout residency, you don't get much training in what is cost effective, what it versus what is extremely expensive and unattainable for this person. You know, you have, we get exposed to it and we have moments where, you know, we have to really make decisions based on those things. But I would argue it's not exactly priority, priority number one. Uh, and for them to be teaching us their, their number one goal for us is to be competent as doctors whenever we leave residency so that we can function. And then probably those lessons come after residency, but because of my own experience with the financial hardships as a patient, I'm much more aware of kind of the things that play into that whenever I'm making decisions with my patients. So do you include in conversations with your patients, the cost benefit analysis, including money? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. Whenever, whenever I left the hospital, I would, I I didn't realize this until after all this was said and done, but I was $2.7 million in debt from, and that was after insurance had already been deducted for what they would pay. And so there was a substantial cost on my end and I ended up having to declare bankruptcy. And so whenever I am talking with patients and we are making medication choices, cost certainly is a, a, a factor. And it's something that I try to reduce the burden of for the patient as much as I possibly can. And so in doing so, I'm being like, hey, there is this medication, you know, it is very expensive, but here are other medications that are not as expensive and we might be able to get the same effect. And so I'm kind of working with them. And if they're able to afford, you know, the good, that really nice medication that's new or, you know, we're seeing really positive results, you know, sure, we go for it. But if they're not, which a lot of my patients are not able to do that, we we get creative, we get crafty and we go through these other medications and, um, we still get good, good results. And so, um, but I'm very aware of it. Whereas I would say people who have not been through this experience, they're not quite as aware Mm -hmm. at just how much it adds up. So you are focusing on psychiatry at this point. I know that you're in your last year of residency. What kind of practice do you actually have in the hospital setting? Is it acute psychiatry at this point? Like right in this moment? 
So we, in our residency, in our fourth year of residency, we're kind of all over the place. So I do have one half day a week. I have my own outpatient clinic. Um, but also, you know, throughout this year, I'm on inpatient psychiatry uh, two months. And then I'm on con- I was just on consult psychiatry in the hospital last month. Uh, I'll do addictions. I'll do um, partial hospitalization program, IOP, kind of all over the place with that. I've done a few months of just therapy focused uh, education. And so your fourth year of residency is a good bit of required things like inpatient consult doing the emergency room. And then there is, you know, more elective choices or you can kind of make it what you want. So I did partial hospitalization. I've done the therapy intensive trainings and things like that. Mm-hmm. So where do you think your path is going to lead you in terms of having had this experience, you're now moving into psychiatry. Do you think that that is going to be part of your journey moving forward to bring my, my stroke. Yeah. Your stroke. Yeah. Oh, 150,000%. It is already a gigantic part of my experience as a doctor and it has transformed the way I view healthcare, the way I view myself as a doctor. And I have been given, you know, not a platform that I wanted, but I've been given a gigantic platform to be able to advocate for patients and to be able to advocate for the changes that I think our healthcare system needs. Um, and these are things that I thought before I ever had my stroke, but now I have a platform and I'm able to advocate for those things kind of with a backbone of, no, we need these changes and here's why. Here's my so what are those story. Changes? What are those changes? Yeah, so I can go on a list of changes, but I would say some of them, kindness is a free change that we can make. Um, Kindness and the way that we approach patient care, the way that we, you know, we can deliver bad news to a patient, but in a way that still provides hope um, and a way that still leaves them feeling like we care and without tearing them down as a person. We as doctors should not be creating barriers for patients. Um, you know, I was told I wouldn't ever be going back to be a doctor again, uh, which are pretty strong words for someone to say, considering here I am, you know, I just left work from the hospital where I was working as a doctor. Um, so we shouldn't, but I, that's because I also have a really good support system and I myself am a pretty resilient person, you know, if there's a challenge, I'm going to try to step up to it and prove that person wrong. And so I was very determined to get back to work as a doctor and do what I want to do. I worked really hard to get into medical school and to get into residency. And then um, I hated the idea of possibly my dreams just being completely taken away from me. And so I don't think healthcare members should be creating additional barriers. I think that the message could have been conveyed kind of like, Hey, like it might be difficult to get back to work as a doctor, but is that what you want to do? And if so, how can we support you? Here's what we have to do to get to that point. You know, um, that was never a conversation that was had with me. The conversation that was had with me was very much like, we don't think that you're going to get there. So you've got to lower your expectations. Yes, yes, yes. And so I, for a while there, I thought I would not be going back to work as a doctor. And I also thought I wouldn't be moving my left arm or left leg. Uh, Here's my left hand. Um, It's moving. And it, 
it really like, you know, I worked out this morning at 5 a.m. I did the elliptical, you know, I, of course I work, used to work out all the time. I would work out, you know, lifting weights and running and doing all those things. I enjoyed the physical challenge and I've had to change my views. Like I can't run, you know, what's left of my deficits are kind of left side of weakness. So like, while I can move my left hand, it's not perfect all of the time. Sometimes it slips. And then, and as far as walking goes, it's been kind of an evolution. You know, I used, uh, they had to use special robotic equipment to teach me how to walk again. And then from there I used a walker for a while and then I leveled up to using a cane for a while. And now I don't use anything. Uh, I just walk, um, but not perfectly and not quickly. And running is likely, you know, maybe maybe far enough in recovery we can see some running, but not right now. And so I kind of had to change my, the way I view what's, what my current position is and what, how I can still have fulfillment and how I can be happy. Um, it might look different than what I expected it to, but I can still get those same satisfaction. So, you know, I'm not getting cardio endorphins by going on a long run, but this morning I went and did the elliptical for an hour and I got the same cardio endorphins. You know, I still got workout. I still burned calories. It was still a good way to start my day. And so you kind of have to change your view and kind of change your perspective on how you can do things. Sometimes get a little creative. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, you are a story of resilience. So it seems to me that if you are dedicated to running, you will probably run again. That said, I'm glad to hear that you're getting those needs met in other ways. Yes. Anything else you would like our audience to know about before we close today? I mean, there's always going to be challenges and there's always going to be adversity and negativity. Um, those things I have found are always going to be present, but it doesn't mean that you have to listen to them. It doesn't mean that you have to take their word as the truth, because had I listened to those words and had I been like, you know what, they're a hundred percent right. I will never be a doctor again. I will never move again. I would still be sitting in a bed and not moving or living my life. Had I not challenged those voices, even though they were doctors and even though they were other healthcare professionals. Um, I think that it's important to always give yourself hope uh, and be patient with yourself. You know, you can have really big goals, but take it one little step at a time. It's taken me a lot of little steps to get to where I'm at in my physical recovery and to getting back to work as a doctor. But if you're determined and if you keep hope, like you can really accomplish anything uh, that you set your mind to. It just may not happen in a day. Well, thank you for your inspirational words, and thank you for joining us today on Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you've liked this episode, please like us on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources, and sign up for our newsletter.